Hello, friend. Thanks for tuning in. So I want to talk about why healing takes such a long time. I'm going to start by telling you a metaphor. Let's say that you have a bunch of rubber bands on your arm and they're cutting off the circulation and your fingers are starting to turn a little purple and it's painful, but the rubber bands have been on there so much that you notice the pain of the swelling, but like your body has tuned out the pain of the rubber bands. So let's say that someone carefully snips the first rubber band on your arm and when it comes off, your body is immediately aware of all the pain it was going through with that rubber band being there for so long that it, had, it, it tuned it out. And, and so the blood has to get used to that new area of space. And, and then a little while later, someone gently snips the second rubber band. And it's the same experience again. And the blood has to take up the new space. Um, and the, the, the swelling is not as bad as it was in your hand. Um, but you still have all these rubber bands on your arm. And so you're making progress. But the progress hurts. And then it feels better. And then it hurts. And then it feels better. And it's not that you weren't in pain. It's that you, you notice how badly you were in pain when the rubber bands come off. So here's how this applies. Those rubber bands represent the lies that hold us down. The lies that that make us doubt God. You know, we don't... Our understanding of his character is the number one influencer of our behavior. If we trust God, we will walk in trust. If we... <laughs> if, if we trust God, we will walk in perseverance. If we trust God, we will walk in love. If we trust God, we will pursue him to receive his love. Because we know intellectually a lot of times that he loves us, but many times we don't feel it in our hearts. And so... When we trust God, we will pursue obedience. Those who love me will obey my commands, is what Jesus said. When, when we love him, and we obey him, and we trust him in that, then he is able, because we're walking in obedience, we put our heart in a position where he is able to free us from those lies. It's sort of like when you are fixing a bad habit um, physically or um, even just doing something differently. I'll use the example of when I was in ballet, I slouched my shoulders all the time and I didn't know how to lengthen my neck. Now, if you've seen any pictures of a ballerina, you think you know that they probably have really long, beautiful necks and fluid arms and my my shoulders were too far forward and my neck was too crunched and very nuanced things. When I finally understood, I was I was twenty one by the time 
this finally got through to me and I had people try to explain it to me for years. And when I finally realized what cor- what correct was supposed to feel like, I literally walked around class and I did the rest of the class just focusing on that correction and making that different feeling the new normal. Does that make sense? Because when we learn what is healthy, it doesn't, it, and we don't recognize it, it, then healthy feels weird. Does that make sense? I hope I'm explaining myself. If not, tweet me and let me know. <laughs> so, back to the rubber bands on the arm. So when God removes one of the rubber band lies from our arm, that's when we feel the pain. In real life, I've noticed a pattern that whenever God is going to heal me from one of those lies, he brings it to my attention. He makes me so aware of how what I've been believing is wrong or how a certain functioning in my heart is not healthy. And I cry out to him and I say, God, I cannot live like this. And he says, you're right. You can't live like this. That's why I'm making you so aware of it. Because once he removes it, I thank him and I thank him and I thank him for removing it. And I give him credit for removing it. And part of the pain when I, when I have that realization is that I am mourning all the years, years that I have believed that lie. Part of life that is very difficult that I don't particularly like is um, um, in order to heal, we have to grieve. We have to mourn the things that, that aren't right. The, the things, the ways that people hurt us. And if we, if we push off that grief, then we numb ourselves and we amplify the emotion and then we become angry and then we're, it's, it's bad. <laughs> kind of like when Ben asked me my opinion on politics and I turned into a sobbing, volatile mess in his lap. In case you're just tuning in, Ben is my husband. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I really suppressed my, I suppress my political opinion because I want to change the world through my artwork and I don't uh, feel that me getting politics off my chest would be very helpful for anyone. So I, I just try to influence the rural world through my art. So that's an example of suppressed emotion and to get back on topic, we have to mourn the pain that that lie has done to us all those years. Now, to answer the question, why does God heal slowly? The only way that we 
could possibly bear to have all those lies moved at once is to be in God's presence in heaven and to have full revelation of his goodness because it is only in the context of his goodness that we do no, we no longer need to mourn the years that were stolen from us and the energy that was wasted and the emotional energy that was kidnapped, kidnapped. So many years of my life were kidnapped by false guilt and shame, and I am done with it. Mm. I had a therapist when I was about 19 or 20 tell me that guilt was my normal state of being. And if I didn't feel guilty, I would feel weird. That's that subconscious, you know, what is wrong feels normal. So I go back to that. So my subconscious would start looking for things to feel guilty about. I'm telling you, one by one, through through the regrets I've collected through the years, just things where I didn't listen to the Holy Spirit and I didn't have wisdom, and I can genuinely say I regarded those, I have finally received the truth that God's grace is big enough to cover every single one. So you might be thinking, wow, Meg, you've, you've, you've done really well for yourself. That's so great that you've, you know, accepted God's grace for all your stuff, but you don't know what I've been through and you, you couldn't have been through anything like what I've been through. And, you know, you, you've got this profile picture where you're just, you're laughing and you're smiling and, and, you know, what have you been through that's, that I could relate to? Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to list every emotional trauma I've been through very factually and as succinctly as possible, which is going to be a while. So buckle your seatbelt. Now, what I'm going to share will greatly expose both myself and my parents. But there are three reasons why I'm going to do this anyway. Number one, my parents are committed Christians. They are faithful to each other these 35 years and they are active in ministry, both in their church and in creating resources for others online. Their faith is not in jeopardy, and I am thankful to call them brother and sister in Christ. And I continue to see them grow and mature throughout the years. And they are the people who raised me are not who they are today. Now, we all still have work to do, but they're not who they were. Number two, I'm doing this because the wounds in the church are great. And both parents and children need to know that there is both grace and redemption for the sins we commit after we come to know God. For some reason, we think that everything's washed before we come to know Christ, but then afterward, it's like, oh, I should have known better, so there isn't grace for this. Uh, there is. There absolutely is grace for all of it. Number three, 
It says in Revelations 11 that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The things that have strengthened my faith the most outside of the scriptures are the testimonies of the believers before me. Those testimonies have strengthened my faith and given me hope that I, the healing that God did in their life, I could receive. The freedom that God did gave in their life, I could receive. And I did not have to be bound by the chains, by the rubber bands, by the lies. And I could receive the abundant life that God promised me here on earth. Yes, I believe in suffering. And yes, I believe in that rivers of living water will flow from my heart as God promised to all believers in the book of John. I believe it's chapter 7. I was a little over the place there, but hang with me. My life verse is Romans 5, verse 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I truly rejoice in my tribulation, in my suffering. As I prepared to share this with you today, I was not filled with anger, nor was I filled with sadness. I was filled with joy that my testimony could strengthen your faith. So I am not speaking this out of bitterness. I'm not speaking this out of unforgiveness. To be sure, these things still throb from time to time, but... Everything that I have been through has enabled me to minister to the people around me. And that brings me such fulfillment that the joy is greater than all the sorrow. And I feel that here on earth. If I feel that here on earth, then how great will the joy be when we are in heaven? And I'm able to see the full reward for all of my obedience. That is the treasure that is before me. That, that is what I am striving for. That is what I want. I'm so joyful for that. So, without further ado, my name is Meg Davis, and this is my story. In the 1970s, before I was born, before my parents even met, and they were only in their teens, one of my grandparents committed suicide. I have never not known about suicide. I could make myself cry on command just thinking about it. Around the age of five, I got saved. My mom says that I watched a Jesus movie, and I asked him into my heart. I don't remember this, though, because around age five, I had my first panic attack. When I was five years old, my father frightened me, and I ran up the stairs. I wanted to watch The Princess Bride, but he wanted me to go to bed. 
I hyperventilated, and fear constricted my throat. I later learned to control my breathing, but it was years before I was free from that physically constricting fear. When I was free, my singing range was radically expanded. Around the same time, my church split. This was so traumatizing to me that a couple years later, I would stand up at summer camp and monologue in front of the entire camp about how painful it was. To state the obvious, I've never been afraid of public speaking. When I was seven, I received God's call on my life. Shortly thereafter, he told me to ask for ballet lessons. At age 10, I began ballet. My brothers and I were homeschooled, from the beginnings all the way through high school for me. I found this beneficial because I was able to develop without peer pressure. An unfortunate detriment was that our family dysfunction was compounded, and we didn't have many friends. I didn't fit in at church, and I didn't fit in at homeschool group. I've always been a very unique child, but I don't regret that. I see the world differently, and that enables me to create art that helps people change the way they think and see God in a fresh way. An accurate way, but a fresh way. I mentioned that I attended summer camp. This was generally somewhat challenging for me because I was an introvert, but it was one week out of the year that I socialized and then was able to retreat for the rest of the 51 weeks of the year and think about all the interactions and then try again next year. I'm very thankful my parents pushed me to do that. At age 14, I attended dance camp, two weeks in Pittsburgh and two weeks with Ballet Magnificat in Jackson, Mississippi. At the first dance camp in Pittsburgh, there was an afternoon when the other girls asked if I would die a virgin if I didn't get married. I said yes, and they proceeded to interrogate me and laugh at me the rest of the afternoon. I have never felt ashamed for this. When I was 13, I made a vow of purity. I looked at myself in the mirror, and I said, I will fight for my purity or I will become a prostitute, and I am fighting for my purity. As bluntly as that, it was... I, I grew up in a very truth-focused family, and while that was beneficial in many ways, it was also very painful in others. But back to summer camp at age 14. At Ballet Magnificat, a Christian ballet camp, it was decidedly different. One worship night, John Vandervelde instructed me to dance solo to the song Healing Oil in the center of the camp, in front of everyone, and then have the rest of my class join me over the dance. The hand of the Lord came upon me so strongly that John recognized me immediately at sight nine years later. This moment affirmed my calling to me, and I was very grateful for that. I returned home and entered the first dark season of my life. My father's neglect crushed me, and I felt bound to my mother by her emotional dependence. I held a grudge against my father, 
and it strained my relationship with God for the next two years. Several significant things happened at this time. Firstly, the emotional and physical abuse of my family continued. I distinctly remember the sound of my father's fists on my brother's body. My mother shoved me once and I bruised my tailbone. There was definitely emotional abuse as well. Secondly, I took personal responsibility for my parents' marital conflict. I thought that if I could be the perfect daughter that it would it would help the family conflict. But it didn't. <laughs> Third, I started delivering newspapers around age 14 and continued this for the next three years until I left home. Fourthly, I went to a new ballet school and my dance teacher verbally abused me. One time, he even called me a pole dancer based on how I was stretching. For those of you who don't know, that qualifies as sexual abuse. Fifthly, I began taking modern. This was very influential in my development as a dancer and really empowered and expanded the way that I thought about movement and I am grateful for it to this day. I'm grateful for my mother initiating my taking those lessons. Sixth, I forgot I was funny. While I was at Ballet Magnificat, my teacher wrote me a note. My, my camp counselor wrote me a note saying, you are so funny. And I hope you didn't mind that we were laughing so hard because we weren't laughing at you, because you but you were simply hilarious. But over that dark season of life, I forgot. I was trying to suppress myself. I had my two younger brothers and my parents, all of them very thoughtful-oriented people, but I was more of the emotional one, and they didn't have emotional energy for a rambunctious female. There was something else significant that happened around this time. Probably around age 13, I found some comic books that depicted multiple types of sexual abuse, prostitution, gang rape. Shortly thereafter, I had a traumatic dream where the enemy, you know, using that newfound knowledge that I had, came into my dream and threatened me with gang rape. This only increased the fear that bound me. The summer I turned 17, I left home for summer camp, then ballet school, then philosophy camp, and then I left home for ballet school for forever. I went home and visited, but I never returned and moved back. That was 2004. The first camp I attended was Boston Ballet. 
and that was a wonderful experience. The second camp I attended was Dan Sadeum, a Christian modern camp. And God again called me out to dance in front of the others, affirming my calling. I then attended Summit Ministries, a Christian philosophy camp. And for those two weeks, I remembered I was funny. And I met some of my best friends in the world. At the end of camp at Summit, I twisted my ankle. When I returned home, my physical therapist looked at my foot and said I was fine. It was actually a second-degree sprain. And with that misdiagnosis, I moved to ballet school. I attended Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet from fall 2004 to spring 2006. I tried to dance on my twisted ankle, but ended up sitting out more and more until finally I saw a doctor and got a diagnosis. I sat out the rest of that, that school year, semester, and finally got back to just a jumping around Christmas time. Over the next two years, I had another injury that spring and then enough off and on that I did not perform until spring of 2006. Between that and an incident earlier that year in 04, I went two and a half years without getting on stage. That's like sitting on the bench, but going to practice for two and a half years. When I first left home, I lived with a woman who played with a Ouija board. Her pets were demon-possessed, and her house was contaminated with black mold. I happened to be allergic to three kinds of mold. The winters were warm and damp, and I was so congested that I slept 12 hours a night and woke up completely sluggish every single day. I practiced driving at Thanksgiving break, Christmas and Easter break, I got my license. A week after I got my license, I moved out of that lady's house into a church friend's house. April 15th, 2005, I was driving home from dance and a car turned into me and scraped the left side, the driver's side of the vehicle from the front tire all the way to the back. I pulled over underneath the overpass of the highway and I hyperventilated and cried. I was so filled with responsibility for other people's actions that I thought it was my fault. It was only when I drove home and called my aunt and her family prayed for me that I was able to calm myself down enough to explain what had happened and she told me that it was not my fault. That's how ingrained the victim mentality, how innate it was in my psyche. Somewhere around this time, there was an incident that caused me to feel separated from my church in my, my parents' church at home in upstate New York. One time when I visited there, I, 
I felt the Holy Spirit push me to dance on the stage during a worship song in the middle of service. And I went on and I danced and I felt that permission and then I got off the stage. But then I felt prideful and I went back on and I danced more in my own strength. Now, when I dance by the Spirit, there are a couple things that happen very consistently. Number one, three people, always three, never more, never less, come up and thank me afterwards. And that time was no exception, fortunately. Number two, when I dance by the Spirit, the organizers of the event, and even security guards, I had a head of security come to me another time and say, oh, I thought that was planned and someone just didn't tell me. And that is a sign that the Holy Spirit has planned it and he just didn't tell anyone. However, when I don't dance in the Spirit, it is embarrassingly apparent to everyone. And uh, someone caught my attention and pulled me off stage and I was thoroughly embarrassed and I wrote an apology letter to my pastor. Um, but unfortunately, that apology letter didn't get to the worship leader. And a year later from that incident, or on another visit, he made a comment at the beginning of worship that there would be no dancing on stage. And that passive-aggressive comment cut me very deeply and it caused me to feel isolated from the church I'd called home for the past you know 13 years spring of 2005 I graduated high school I barely finished my five-page paper summer was good hurricane Katrina hit and spiked the gas prices. Now, I was trying to live on $50 a week, and I drove from Carlisle to Harrisburg three times a week to attend college classes. With gas prices spiking, I was spending the majority of my money on gas. There were multiple days when I walked through the grocery store with not enough money. I returned I returned a box of tea and honey for $5 because I went over budget. There was money in the account, but my mind had budgeted me at $50. My parents didn't realize how that was affecting me. And unfortunately, I was even encouraged to try and save money for point shoes out of that money. I walked to the grocery store one time with $2. I bought a lot of bananas. I bought frozen meatballs. But I began to be angry at life, at the situation. I decided to take my anger out on myself. I stopped eating and fell asleep with hunger pains in my, in my stomach. Eventually, 
I started to feel cold when everyone else was warm, and comfortable when everyone else was hot. I had bumps on the outside of my arms, and I would pick them in the middle of class, and they would bleed in front of the other girls. I was 18 at the time, and one of the little 10-year-olds would come up to me and say, please don't pick it. I still remember her kind words. The church friend that I live with was going through her own struggles and wasn't able to help me. She spent most of her time at a friend's house. I ended up living in her home alone, making my own meals, taking care of myself. All of this caught up to me, and I became sick. One day, I I had a bit of a job picking up a, 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 a girl in class and bringing her to the studio and then back. And so I called my mom and said, I'm going to re- take Rebecca, pick Rebecca up and take her home, and then I'm going to come back, even though I'm, I'm sick and I shouldn't really be driving, but I'm just going to do this. I got off the phone. I got in the car. And as I drove, I came towards the underpass, where exactly six months earlier, I'd had the hit and run. And I turned my face and I looked to the left and there was a church with a, with a cross lit at nighttime. And I thought, God, why have you allowed all of this suffering? Why? And I looked ahead on the road again. And there was a new light that had been put in a few months earlier. And a car was stopped at that light. And I ran into it at 40 miles an hour. The car was totaled. My mother drove six hours from upstate New York to where I was and helped me figure things out. I casually commented to her, I wish I was actually skinny. And she looked at me and she put me on the scale. I'm five feet and eight inches tall and I weighed 111 pounds. That was the darkest moment of my life. But life continues. I went back to class, went back to college class and dance class. We practiced about 35 hours a week in the evenings, Monday through Friday, and then many hours on Saturday. We would take two classes every night, and at the beginning of second class, I would stare at the clock, and once the evening hit the halfway point, I would calculate the percentage and then the fraction of how much time was left. And I did that over and over and over again.
My math skills are still pretty quick to this day. <laughs> My church tried to support me. I went to a church member's house for, for lunch every Sunday. People would ask me, how are you? And I would pause to think, have I eaten? Have I slept? And then I would tell them, I'm doing okay. And they would ask, you had to think about that? And the truth was that I did. Because I was that broken. I laid in bed at night, and the only thing I clung to was the hope that one day God would use this pain and redeem it to help me help others. I have the gift of encouragement, and I've been walking in that gift for many years. And I knew, I knew that God could redeem this, and that was the only thing I clung to. I knew that, I knew that there, I had hope. I had hope that one day I would be loved as I needed to be loved. I hoped that I would be married to someone who was emotionally intelligent and kind and sensitive, not neglectful and not a brick wall. And I am thankful and happy to say that God has absolutely answered and redeemed all of those prayers. Spring of 2006, my time at Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet came to an end. I moved to Pittsburgh and took classes at the school I'd attended before, previously in the summer of 01. The teachers there were very kind. I would cry putting on my ballet shoes before class. And I stood at a place at the bar where I couldn't see myself in the mirror. For the first six months I did that. I would scream the tears out of my face as I would drive to Bible study every Wednesday night. I couldn't cry while I lived at Carlisle, while I was attending Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet. But when I escaped, I was able to mourn. I had to mourn what I had been through. The next two years, I worked at Starbucks and saved up money so that I could do company auditions later on. I took acting class with Jill Wadsworth and her input in my life greatly healed me. The first dance improv that I post on YouTube was filmed in her acting class. I laid at bed at night, I laid in bed at night and asked God if there was anything I could do other than ballet. But I looked at the pattern, I looked at his hand on my life, his affirmations of my calling, and I could not escape. I could not escape that he had created me. 
not just anointed me and purposed in my heart, but he had literally designed my body with excellent proportions and beautiful shape for movement. My teachers were very kind while I was at Ballet Academy of Pittsburgh. But I regret to say that I was not very grateful for them. And I've apologized to in person, and I would like to document my apology on public. But I was not, I was very ungrateful for them, and I regret that very much. The people at my small group helped me a lot. They let me talk about it. And then one day I realized it's time for me to stop talking about it. And so I stopped. I'd mourned it enough. It was time to look forward and move on. My coworkers at Starbucks were equally supportive and I am forever grateful to them, especially Alicia. Alyssa, Rice, and Christian. One of my coworkers, her boyfriend was a filmmaker. Now I'd entered a season of life where the only thing that made me happy was talking about this one idea I had, this one story idea. And I just thought if I could film that, that would make me so happy. So my coworker Jessica and her boyfriend Fred Fouad Bourgeois and Jason Smith helped me to film Blue Dress, and I am forever grateful to them. Unfortunately, I was not a very good friend to them. I tried to help them with a 48-hour film project competition, and uh, I had another car accident. I flirted with Jason and led him on because I was selfish and I liked the attention. (sighs) I regret that very greatly. I regret hurting them very greatly. But shortly after that, I moved to Florida. Two weeks after moving to Florida, I found friends at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, and I knew I was home. I lived, I lived in Florida for nine years, the same apartment for nine years. This was a, this was the golden era of my singleness. For that first year of 2008, I attended ballet school at the Art of Classical Ballet School with Magali Suarez. And um, she was a good teacher. She was the one who finally got it through to me that I needed to pull my shoulders back and lengthen my neck. That spring of 2009... I auditioned for one ballet company. I was very picky about where I wanted to work. 
I'd heard so many horror stories of the dance world. And I'd, I'd auditioned at this particular company once in 2008. But they hired a boy that year. In 2009, I, I sent them some video of myself. And um, they kindly wrote back to me to say that they couldn't hire anyone that year. And their budget was, was maxed out. So I sat on my bed. And I asked God what to do. My younger brother was graduating from high school and beginning to attend college. I knew that I needed to get off my parents' money to help my brother go to college. The part-time job that I had at a shoe store had a assistant manager position. I applied for it and I got the job. I made a lot of mistakes at that job. But I also learned a lot too. I was very thankful for all the managers I had throughout those three years. It was around this time, right before I started that position full time, that I filmed Dance With by the Newsboys. I edited it myself and filmed it. And I showed it to my friend at the video department where I volunteered at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. And I was very blessed to have that department and that department head in my life. He affirmed me in very deep ways. He affirmed me in things that I knew myself, but I'd never heard anyone else say. And so I had doubted them. But when he told me, then I believed them again. And that's a huge reason about why I'm still pursuing the arts and pursuing dance. And I'm very thankful for him. And I'm very thankful for Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. I made many beautiful friends at church. And I, I made a lot of mistakes with those friends. I was a selfish, dysfunctional, unhealthy person. I was emotionally volatile. I, I hadn't had the opportunity to express my emotions during my teen years with my family. And during the four years at, in Pennsylvania, I hadn't had the safety or the place to express those emotions. But now they, they exploded. They dominated my personality. And some friendships survived and others didn't. But I'm thankful for all of them. And the friends that I had then, who I still have, have told me that they could tell when I was going to have a breakdown. Um, and they can tell how much I've changed because I'm no longer dominated by my emotions. And that is a huge testament to the grace of God.
In 2012, I began a vlog channel. <laughs> I had insomnia that night, and I just held up the camera and started filming. And that was how Meg Living Inside Out was born. Technically, the name was came, came out by Sheila Campbell. No. That's my relative. Technically, <laughs> technically, the, um, there was a Sheila who helped me set up my first blog, and she came up with the handle Meg Living Inside Out, and that's how it came to be. Writing that blog helped me to learn to communicate. I learned to put the most important thing first, and that five-page paper that I'd written when I graduated high school was overshadowed now by a blog post 2,000 words long about the man who was healed by the pool and, and um, in John 5, and another long blog post about Jephthah's daughter and how she honored God even though her father, who Jephthah is honored in a Hebrews 5, but it was still his rash vow that caused her very great struggle in her life, however you wish to interpret that story in the book of Judges. So I was growing a lot, and um, I started to pay for my own cell phone bill. That was, that was really when I became an adult. <laughs> One day, I was whining at God about something, and he said to me, would you speak to your future husband this way? And I said, no, God, I would never want to do that. And he said, so why are you treating me this way? Whining and disrespecting me. And I was appropriately shamed. And from that day forward, I practiced respecting God unconditionally. And the more that I practiced that, the more that I realized that that is something that my future husband would need. Because I want unconditional love, and he wants unconditional respect. One example of my change in my person. There was one day I was washing dishes. A very great struggle for me. I went 13 years without a dishwasher. I was washing dishes and I felt the Holy Spirit convict me for something. I don't even remember what it was, but I looked at myself in at my reflection in the nearby window and I started yelling at myself. And then at some moment in the middle of yelling, I realized I would never treat a child that way. And God wouldn't even yell at me that way. Now that's subject to opinion, but his conviction of me was not unkind. But I was being unkind to myself. But that was how I was raised. In 2011, I filmed Shine. That was a long, drawn-out process. We, we lost 80 to 90% of the footage. 
It was corrupted during the transfer, and the original was destroyed. We managed to make the finish editing the dance film anyways, but it was a very discouraging project for me. I'm glad I finished it though because I learned more from that project than any of the others. And I wanted to show by putting out multiple dance films that I was not going to be a one-hit wonder, a one-time project maker. This is God's calling and I'm going to walk in it. In January of 2014, I bumped into my husband on the internet. I did not know he was to be my husband, but there was a spark, and it was very beautiful. And a few months into our online friendship, we weren't online to date, we were just online to make friends. But a few months in, I had a crush on him. And that crush continued over the next couple of years until one month, February of 2016, it became so strong that I looked him up, determined to find his picture. And I did. And I decided that he was cute and that I wanted to marry him. So I started fasting from chocolate, tea, and coffee. Herbal, decaf, everything. Let me tell you, this is the most socially awkward fast you can possibly do. <laughs> I started fasting, and then April 3rd, my chance finally came, and I told him that I liked him. He was blown away. I'd held back my attraction to him for two years because I was determined not to lead him on. I'd, I'd done that before. <laughs> the summer of 2006, my mental health came crashing down. I'd always had low energy. I'd always been a sleepy baby. I had low thyroid symptoms for years, but I just thought it was who I was. I, I never looked them up. I never took them seriously. I just thought I only have so much margin and then I have to rest. And people would invite me to parties and say, oh, we love your energy. And, and I didn't know how to explain to them that the person that they saw at those momentary gatherings was so expensive for me physically. I mentioned before that my grandparent committed suicide in the 1970s. I'd never not known what it was. I started questioning my existence when I was 14 years old, in that first dark season. Now I question it again. I was burned out. Every vitamin in my body was completely depleted. I had a bad bacteria in my stomach. My thyroid was low. My adrenals were burned out. I was having hot flashes.
and I, when I had PMS in June of 2006, I was crying so hard, I had to go to my neighbor's house with my Bible and read her the Bible to calm down. In July of 2006, I tweeted someone twice with the same message, two minutes apart. And that was how I knew that something was physically wrong and my short-term memory was shorting out. I finally realized I needed to ask for help and that something was physically wrong. I told my boss, I told my human resources, and the company that I worked for was extremely supportive. The workload plus me not taking care of myself and not taking time off for the past two years had, and all together, it had broken me down. But God would have used something else to break me. Those were just circumstances. Spring of 2016, I told God, I'm finally ready, I'm finally brave enough to be the dancer that you've always wanted me to be. And he affirmed that by taking me back to square one. My emotional instability put a great strain on my relationship with Ben. We had not met in person, only communicated by phone and video chat. We didn't even know if we had chemistry. By the grace of God, our friendship survived, and our relationship survived. And I am forever grateful for that. I began seeking medical help. I saw my OBGYN and got my thyroid tested. I saw a holistic doctor in Florida and got more blood work tested. I saw another doctor in January of 2017, Mensa Medical, and they came up with a vitamin supplement that ultimately healed me and has restored my complete energy. April of 2017, I moved north to live with my future in-laws. They lived near to Ben, but not super close. So I would drive to visit Ben on the weekends and we would spend the, we would sleep at a friend's house so we wouldn't be together. We got married August 12th of 2012, 2017. August 12th, 2017, we got married and it was truly a great redemption a great redemption day. Follow that year, my yeast levels got too high and I was suicidal again. Newly married, trying to take care of my husband, blessed with being a stay-at-home wife. I had the prescription from the doctors at Mensa Medical, but I had been through too much life transition to be brave enough to make the change. 
I got on a antifungal medication to lower my yeast. And I started in December 9th, 2017. I started my custom compound vitamin blend. It is now February of 2018. And everything that I have listed to you has been redeemed, restored, and healed, or is in the process of. There are still challenges. I am still not whole. But as I interact with my husband, I recognize who I was even five years ago, before God teach me, taught me to respect him. And I realize that I am indebted to that lesson for the health of my marriage now. We do not have it easy. We do not have it perfect. But we are blessed by the grace of God. And we are happy. And I am poised to bring more art into the world in these next few years than I ever have before. My name is Meg Davis. I am a redeemed and restored child of God. I am 30 years old. And I love my Jesus. And I believe in living inside out. Now it's your turn. Go live it. I have a quick addendum after listening to all of this back. Number one, I don't remember exactly when I started delivering newspapers, so that may have been less than three years, but it was around 2001. Two, 2016 was the year that I, uh, I had my mental health breakdown. I kept on saying 2006. I apologize. It was 2016. <laughs> Number three, I had a dishwasher when I was in Carlisle, so it was from Pittsburgh through Florida for 11 years, not 13. Only 11 years I didn't have a dishwasher. But that's still pretty traumatizing. 